USA, Lafayette's weekly podcast. I'm your host Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts Bill Donahue. Hello, hello, and Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Got a got a pretty pretty awesome show this week, if I do say so myself. Um, there's a lot, uh, as usual, to talk about. One thing we're going to do, we're going to speak with Anna Sanders, who's one of our legal industry reporters. She had some really great reporting about an employment law firm that is facing some um, backlash from its own employees about some alleged sexual and racial discrimination. So we'll break it all down. Yeah, it's a great chat with Anna. Stick around for that. Uh, but first, we have to talk about COVID. Have you guys ever no heard way. of this? What is going on? <laughs> no, it's I've, a disease. I've, I, I want to know more about it. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, we're it's still we're, going we're, on. We're thick in it again. Uh, here yeah. in New York, they just closed schools again. Uh, more closures are probably coming to you wherever you live because it's everywhere. But um, <laughs> yeah. COVID closures so, coming to a city near you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they're also coming to a court near you. Um, yeah. uh, courts all over the country are feeling this latest and biggest surge of COVID-19 cases. Um, uh, this last week, the biggest story was uh, there was a major trial in Texas that became something of a super spreader event and and ended in a mistrial as a result. Um, We're seeing states all around the country shutting down jury trials again. It's a whole mess. Let's get into it. Yeah. So why don't you tell us sort of the details about what went on in Texas? I know they've had a lot of trouble with one particular case. Yeah, Texas is sort of the top line here. Um, uh, So last Monday, November 9th, uh, there was this trial going on in the Eastern District of Texas, the federal court uh, in the eastern part of Texas. And um, on Monday, it was put on hold after a juror uh, tested positive. The case was a like a breach of contract case. Um, jury selection had started on November 2nd, uh, and jurors had heard six days of testimony the week prior and on Monday before this positive test came out. Um, by Thursday of last week, uh, an attorney had also tested positive. By the next day, Friday, Friday the 13th, um, the picture was getting clearer and it was not good at all. Uh, seven participants in the trial by Friday had tested positive, including two jurors, three members of the defense team, one or more members of the plaintiff's team, and one court staffer. This information sort of trickled out uh yeah. so that's why you have some of this imprecise language but um by tuesday it, it you know we, we had 15 participants this past tuesday a couple days ago we had 15 participants in the trial uh testing positive and the judge at that point declared a mistrial um to continue the case the, there would have been only a five-person jury because of these people who had been knocked out with COVID and uh, one of the parties, I can't remember which, uh, said, you know, we can't proceed with with a five person jury. Let's let's call this thing. Yeah, I mean, well, there's there, there's so many reasons for mistrials to happen, like, you know, whether there's like some problem with the evidence or witness tampering or something like that. And now, because of these capital letters in these times, COVID is now is now another reason to to declare a mistrial. Yeah. So, I mean, the trial will be uh, it'll be. Uh, you know, presumably rescheduled for some point in um, in in next year. Uh, it's I think this this story is interesting in the context of the Eastern District of Texas. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, a, a lot of federal courts federal courts have done things sort of their own their own way. State courts have all done things their own way. We'll get into that in a second. But um, a lot of federal courts had avoided in person civil jury trials entirely, doing a lot of stuff virtually. 
Um, but but the Eastern District of Texas, um, the reason we talk about it a lot is it's a it's a patent litigation hotspot. Um, yeah, they they had thus far forged ahead. Um, they've held something like twenty in person trials since they reopened in June. Uh, the very first of which in August yielded a um, five hundred million dollar uh, in. Yeah, patent infringement verdict against Apple. So, um, the Eastern District was was charging ahead with these with these cases. That might be changing now. Um, you know, after uh, this mistrial happened here, the judge said that um, all you know he he didn't have any cases in his court until December, and those cases were going to be pushed till January. So now things are pushed in his courthouse until. Uh, January and and yesterday we saw Samsung uh, that is involved in. Um, a big patent litigation case uh, in another case in front of Judge Rodney Gilstrap, who is America's most famous, very mo- very foremost uh, patent yeah. judge. Um, they Samsung asked uh, Gilstrap to postpone their impending trial until next spring. The quote from from their motion: "The incidents of COVID nineteen infecting thirteen people." Jurors, counsel, and court staff at a recent trial in Sherman, Texas, underscores that even the best efforts and precautions cannot prevent trials from serving as spreader events. So, uh, yeah. So we will see if Texas continues charging ahead. Yeah, they left out the word super spreader as a spreader event, but that's basically what this was. I mean, it's just, that's just shows branding. That, I mean, I, I mean, that's just a branding thing. Well, but I, yes. mean, I just I just think, um, you know, Bill ably laid out there that the patent judges in Texas did not want to change the way that they do business down right. there. Um, right. But it's it's hard to continue on when uh, when jury pools and, and the other people involved in the court um, can end up being super spreaders. One person can infect a whole courtroom of people. Yeah, I mean, te- it's it's interesting that this specific district was like like you say forging ahead when other when other courts were being a little more cautious. But this is not just a Texas problem, as anyone who reads the news knows uh, knows about. There's surges happening all over the place. What else? What else do we have to report on in terms of uh, how it's affecting uh, courts? Yeah, I mean, t- Texas has seen something like sixty thousand new COVID cases in just the last seven days. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes sense like that that something like this is happening in Texas. But those kind of crazy numbers, we're seeing them all over the country. I think yesterday it was 178,000 cases across the country. So nice. courts in, in many different jurisdictions are having to sort of go back to that mindset that we were in in, you know, in March and April of, oh, God, how do we deal with this? Um, you know, yeah. they've learned a lot since then. But um but so, uh, you know, on November 13th, uh, New York announced that all new jury trials and grand jury proceedings in state court would be postponed uh, indefinitely. They didn't give a, you know, a, a when that will start back up again, but just that they need to be shut down now. Um, in, uh, you know, in the lead up to that, uh, at least 15 different people who work in the New York City court system in various capacities had reported testing positive. So it had really, especially here in New York City, mm-hmm. it had really reached a, a tipping point. Um, three days later, this this Monday, uh, New Jersey followed suit, said they would do a similar thing, pausing all um, jury trials and grand jury proceedings. Um, uh, in a number of other states, particularly those in the really hard hit upper Midwest and Plains uh, states, uh, th- there's there's also a number of new restrictions. Um, last week, uh, the federal courts in Minnesota postponed all trials till 2021. Um, in in very late October, uh, the federal courts in in North Dakota postponed till 
the end of November. We'll see if that gets pushed back even further. Uh, and and just today, we got more in Wyoming and Tennessee. Both issued uh, orders saying that jury trials would be suspended through January. Um, so it's it's things are moving fast. Uh, by the time you listen to this, there will probably be more. I would uh, highly suggest Law Three Hundred and Sixty has a has a full interactive tool where you can go through and see all the different states and all the different shutdowns. Everyone should go check it out. Um, but it's a uh, it's a it's a messy situation, and the courts are trying to figure out how to move forward with the very essentials that they can without sort of becoming uh, what we saw in Texas this week. I remember when we rolled out the guide of court closures and suspensions and things like that in April or whatever it was, thinking, oh well, that'll probably get some use for a few months and then it'll peter out. But uh, no such luck, unfortunately. Um, we have more COVID-related news to discuss for our second story, and this time there's some intersection uh, with the always busy and always interesting immigration beat. Uh, this week we saw a D.C. federal judge strike down the Trump administration's policy of expelling unaccompanied migrant children from the U.S. border under a public health order that was aimed at stemming the COVID outbreak. So these were these were part of the um, the, the, the raft of, restri- of travel restrictions and immigration restrictions that the administration imposed in the wake of COVID. And it's a, it's a really interesting decision because a lot of the administration's critics or critics of the, of the immigration policies thought that the pandemic would, could serve as a pretext for implementing these restrictions even more aggressively. Now, the judge in this case didn't quite go at it from such a political angle. It's actually a very sort of weedy textual analysis. But in the process, he attempts to draw some lines around the interplay between immigration laws and public health laws. And it's a really interesting case because of that. Yeah, this one is, um, you know, I think the administration and President Trump in particular spent a lot of time touting how he had shut down travel from China and then later Europe, but yeah. didn't t- didn't sort of play up as often the moves that his administration made in the immigration space. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that was uh, created maybe a little more fervor with some more lawsuits that had sprung up around those immigration restrictions. What do we need to know um, about the lawsuits and what happened? Well, the lawsuit we're talking about today sort of fits under the umbrella of this emergency order that Trump handed down in March when everything started to go sideways with COVID that, um, had had a couple of different conditions, but effectively it blocked U.S. borders to immigrants in order to contain the COVID spread. There were various carve outs for necessary for necessary travel and things like that. But it basically shut the door to immigrants who were seeking to come here. That order has led to the expulsion, meaning like turning people away at the border of roughly 200,000 immigrants, including somewhere between 9,000 and 13,000 unaccompanied minors. And that is... um, uh, those minors are sort of at the at the center of the lawsuit we're talking about today. The ACLU filed a proposed class action on behalf of those minors, and they basically said that this emergency public health order uh, does not and cannot override the government's obligation to shelter those children while their asylum claims are being processed. That there is a system in place for unaccompanied minors, and that um, you know whatever health emergency you want to cite, it can't override those obligations that Congress uh, you know gave to the administration. Right. It's two very you know two very very strong arguments. Right. This 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 idea of the government is there to protect public health, but they also have this obligation to to protect these children. You know, it's take out all the 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 political layers of yeah. uh, of how these questions are charged right now, Definitely. but. 
Um, they are two very different sort of compelling things that are somewhat in tension here. Um, mm-hmm. What did the judge say about this, you know, balancing act? You're right to point out that the, the, the obviously politically charged nature of the litigation, I don't want to say that's not important or anything, but it's interesting that the question ultimately ultimately boiled down the question between this idea of public health versus the, you know, uh, children seeking asylum um, boiled down to some pretty some pretty. Um, uh, very very fine and weedy statutory interpretation. So District Judge Emmett Sullivan, a D.C. federal judge, he ruled that the government's uh, basically what, what we will call the expulsion policy, the thing that was provided for under the emergency order, that that policy is not authorized by the public health law that the administration cited to hand down that order. That law is known as uh, Title 42. And what you need to know about the law is that that allows the federal government that allows the federal government to prohibit the quote introduction of foreign citizens who may bring diseases into the US but as the judge said that phrase does not encompass expulsion so he's drawing a line between people being introduced into the US population versus literally turning them away at the border his quote is his basic quote here is quote Expelling persons as a matter of ordinary language is entirely different from interrupting, intercepting, or halting the process of introduction. So that analysis is interesting to me because it speaks to the way, and Amber, you can kind of uh, comment on this because I know obviously the immigration issues are near and dear to your heart, but like the extent to which immigration law is sort of carried out in the liminal space between like unencumbered living in the United States and whatever home country you came from. So sort of when you are in, when you are under the government's control, the idea of like, okay, you can't introduce these people into the U.S. population, but you have no authority to turn them away and tell them where they came from. So um, there's no sign of an appeal yet from the government. But if the order stands, what we need to know is that the government can no longer expel unaccompanied minors from the border, and instead they have to move them to be housed by the Office of Refugee Resettlement as their claims are processed. So like the the normal order of business there is that the ORR houses these children, and from there they are most often released into the U.S. to family members or to sponsors. So it's basically you have to revert to your normal policy. I feel like this thorny statutory interpretation um, for any immigration attorney or person uh, that follows immigration law listening to the show, it just sounds really familiar. I mean, so many things in the immigration space come down to just a very weedy interpretation of what is some of our more complex um, laws in the U.S., mm-hmm. particularly yeah. about refugees and asylees. It's it's often very complicated, more than what people think it will be. So this ruling actually doesn't surprise me a ton. Um, but I think we should probably leave people, since it can be weedy, uh, with just the general upshot of what happens next. Where do we stand now? Yeah. Well, I want to stress that the the case before the judge ap- ap- applies only to minors traveling alone. Like I say, on unaccompanied minors and that the government can still turn away adults or even families that have children um, on the basis of this emergency COVID order. Um, But Sullivan's uh, like analysis of the law is just comes down to, like I say, those two terms, introduction versus uh, expulsion and things like that. So it's sort of facially neutral. It applies to the unaccompanied minors because that's who sued and that's what the question was before him. I spoke to our own Suzanne Munyak, the immigration, our, our immigration reporter who's been on the show many times who cover this, and she said it's um, she's spoken to people who say it's, it, it's very likely to see wider challenges to this um, that, that, that could cover 
anyone traveling to the U.S., not just unaccompanied minors, um, to a sort of broader class of migrants. Um, also, we would be remiss if we didn't at least mention the looming, we uh, we assume, the transfer of power to President-elect Joe Biden. The former vice president has, on the campaign trail in a number of contexts, promised to walk back or strike down a number of the Trump administration's immigration policies, whether we're talking about the Muslim ban um, or various DACA restrictions and things like that. Um, but on COVID restrictions, they've taken a little bit of a softer tone in terms of what they would do. They would basically say, or they, they have said that they would basically more closely coordinate with the CDC and other public health offices that they say Trump has neglected. So here you have a policy that kind of straddles both lines. It is a very sort of sweeping immigration restriction, but it is ostensibly rooted in a public health interest. So as the transition goes on, if this if this case lives on and there are more cases brought in its wake, it's definitely something to keep an eye on to see how the new uh, how, how, how a new administration will uh, will tackle it. Heisler Sharp is a law firm known for representing clients who've been discriminated against, including fighting harassment and pay inequity in big law. But leaders at Sanford Heisler have struggled to address complaints from legal assistants who allege widespread sexist and racist behavior at the firm. Here to explain the situation is one of our legal industry reporters, Anna Sanders. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, kind of a heavy topic for us to get into here. But before we jump to what's being alleged against the firm. I think it really helps if people know more about Sanford Heisler. Can you tell us about the firm itself and what kind of clients they're known for? So the firm is somewhat small. You know, it's not a big law firm, but they do have offices around the country and they have about 50 attorneys, but um, they're primarily focused on employment law and they're most well known in the legal industry for handling discrimination and sexual harassment cases against big law firms like Jones Day and Morris and, and Forrester. But they also, you know, have filed smaller lawsuits, but those are primarily the big lawsuits that they've handled that, yeah, pe- that think, people are know, know them for. I think we've even talked about some of those suits here on Pro Se because they really have been high profile against, you know, you know, household name type firms. Like everybody knows who Jones Day is, for example. Um so it seems to me like this is the, on the face of it, they're the kind of firm that you would think would not have any of these types of problems with their own workforce. Um, but I know from your, your reporting that that's not the case right now. So basically in June, responding to the national reckoning over race relations and race in our country, especially during a pandemic, uh, a group of 29 legal assistants at the firm organized and drafted a letter in which they outline some some like mild to very serious allegations of sexual harassment and racial, ethnic, and sexual discrimination at the firm. So, um, you know, could you give us a little bit of detail of of what kind of things we're talking about here? I mean, um, uh, it's you know, 
you you said that they there's sort of a range of of different um you know different accusations here walk us through a few of them a few of the more serious ones yeah so one of the legal assistants who i spoke to on the record for the story he has since left the firm uh he said that he was wearing a Yale Latino shirt. And uh, one of the partners said, that shirt makes you look like you're in a gang. He has also had a partner tell him, you know, after Floyd's death, that Joy, George Floyd is a thug. And um, that partner said that multiple times. Um, another attorney was accused of talking about a le- female legal assistant to um, clients who had been staring at her saying she cost the cheapest but was worth the biggest bang for her buck. Um, Another person was overheard, you know, kind of making fun of Asian names. Um, They said, these Asian names give me so much trouble, bing bong, bing bong. And then someone else overheard another partner saying, since you signed a contract legally binding you from effing her, want to pass her over to me so I can give her a good effing. And, you know, there were a lot of other comments yeah. that were slightly, you know, less intense than those. It's, you know, I think it's it's sort of the subtext to this whole story is that it's, you know, it's it's shocking to hear that kind of stuff anywhere. But it's particularly, I think, surprising when it's a firm that we've talked about on this show and many, many people in the legal industry know for bringing these kind of claims, you know, representing people making these kind of accusations. So... How did the firm respond? You would think that they would at least understand the, the 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 weight of the situation and that there were perhaps legal implications here. What did they do when they got this letter? So initially they responded, you know, the way you might expect a firm to respond. They said, we're taking these seriously. We're hiring a neutral, they said, investigator, an attorney to look into these claims. Um, and so they responded Uh, several days after the letter saying that. And then a few days after that initial response, one of the legal assistants um, who has since left the firm, who was, you know, his stories were featured in this letter, he forwarded the entire firm the letter so that the rest of the firm knew what firm chairman David Sanford was talking about when he said, we're looking into this letter that we got. And it was on July 6th, after this entire letter was forwarded to the whole firm, that Sanford then (laughs) sent another email to the firm saying that they had reason to believe that some of the allegations were motivated by anti-Semitism or anti-white female animus. And that, Mm. you know, we're going to look into these, but basically saying we don't know if some of them are true and we know that we think that some of them are misleading. And that was what was surprising to so many people I spoke to, particularly not just the legal assistants, but a lot of like higher level attorneys at the firm who work these cases. They were shocked that that this is how that they were, Sanford would respond. And that not only that, that he put it in writing in that way. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should explain a little more for people that maybe don't follow these kinds of employment um, allegations and these types of investigations about why some of these attorneys were shocked. But I can just say as a person that covers a lot of employment law stuff, um, that's not what you would tell a client to do. You would tell a client to 
sort of take a step back, let the investigator do what they need to do before you continue to discuss these matters. I mean, that was their basic surprise, right? Yeah. And the other thing that was surprising to a lot of people, in addition to him saying we, like, you know, counter accusing an entire group of people of bias, they kind of tried to frame the letter as orchestrated by this one legal assistant named Javier Alvarez. And in that second letter, that uh, second email that David Sanford wrote to the firm accusing the legal assistants of their own bias in their motivation for sending this letter, he put Alvarez on leave until the investigation was over, which a lot of people at the firm, including attorneys, not just legal assistants, felt was very clear retribution. And again, something that they would have totally latched onto if Alvarez was their own client. Yeah, I think that's that's the real tension in this story, that it's a surprising fact pattern to find at a firm that truly knows this area of the law inside and out. Um, so where do we stand now? I mean, I, you outlined some some pretty tough allegations, and it makes me wonder things like, you know, are a bunch of these people still at the firm? You would think that some people maybe would have left over this kind of stuff. And and how did the investigation turn out? Just give us sort of some of the updates about what, what the, the fallout was after. Yeah. So by so the original letter was sent by 29 legal assistants anonymously, although the firm knew that Javier Alvarez was one of them. By the time I reported out this story, Um, The legal assistants had also sent another letter revealing their names or a portion of their names. And of the names that I'm aware of that were involved in the original letter, about 12 are left. And that's out of 29. And several of them told me they left on purpose because of how this was handled. Um, Mm. Alvarez was reinstated after the investigation because the investigator essentially found that there was no actual bias motivation in any of the actions or comments. And um, they reinstated Javier, but he, of course, left, you know, after all this panned out anyway. Let's maybe talk a little bit more about the investigator's findings. So basically, he said this stuff is distasteful, but not, um, you know, racially or sexually motivated comments or just sort of one-off unpleasant things. Yeah. So... I will add an asterisk to this. No one at the firm that I spoke to got an actual debrief of the investigation. The only thing that the firm sent out was um, on August 10th, they sent a, a memo to all firm employees where they analyzed his general conclusions. And so they, so in this memo, um, the executive community of the firm said, um, the investigator, quote, found that there is little evidence to indicate that racial and ethnic animosity played a role in any of the behavior alleged. He found there was no sign of gender animosity. He concluded that the incidents, as alleged, were isolated one-offs and represented insensitivities that needed to be addressed. Okay, so even if we take that as true, which I imagine some of the people involved are dubious of the investigation, but even if you think that the investigation was fully on the up and up and they were one-offs, it's still not a great look for this law firm or for any employer to have this happen. So did Sanford Heisler take any steps to try to train their people better, get them to not even have these one-off situations come up? Yeah, they um, developed and have already begun implementing um, 
recurrent sensitivity training, as well as additional management training for partners who have to manage people. Mm -hmm. And um, they're, they also developed and are implementing an internal employee dispute resolution process, which several of my sources thought was strange that this firm did not have that since it's an employment law firm, Uh, but they are developing that. They um, also are basically coaching certain attorneys and, you know, trying to develop a system where legal assistants can confidentially evaluate attorneys so that these kinds of things can come up during that evaluation process. We'll have a lot to watch as we move forward, um, seeing how um, this continues at the firm, if those measures take effect and and this sort of resolved. But really appreciate your reporting on this. It was um, such an interesting story to learn about the inner workings that are so unexpected with a firm that covers employment law all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that there's definitely going to be more to say about this. We'll have you back on whenever there's more, Anna. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you guys for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Anna. So guys, this is typically the point in the show where I say we like to turn to something offbeat, but we actually don't have anything this week. I'm a little sad about that. There was nothing offbeat at all. The world was is not funny. <laughs> the uh, Yeah, the world and the legal world was having a normal one, obviously. Um, but we do have some good news in this regard. Next week, we will be doing, we're going to stick to our typical plan. Uh, the last couple of shows that we run on the Thanksgiving week, we'll be running down our favorite offbeat segments of the past year. Uh, and despite all the grim, uh, macabre, crap going on around you there was actually quite a lot to choose from and uh, i'm excited for people to hear that one yeah i i I went into looking back through our archive thinking this has been a tough year what will we have but there were some real gems so it's gonna be fun to share those with everybody next week i hope everybody tunes in for that um but until then thanks for being with me this week bill see you again in two weeks guys and thanks for being with me alex see you guys we also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Anna Sanders, and contributing reporters, Suzanne Moniak and Kevin Penton. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love for you to leave us a written review and five stars. It helps other people find us. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, head over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks. And see you back here for that show about all of our favorite funny moments next week.